This summer, Utah experienced a historic drought, and people kind of freaked out about it. It's devastating to see how low the Great Salt Lake is. If we don't save that lake, uh, the future of Utah looks bleak. Please join me and Utahns, regardless of religious affiliation, in a weekend of humble prayer for rain. Because of the drought, the Great Salt Lake reached its lowest water level in recorded history. And state leaders realized the lake is in big trouble. That sense of urgency has led to a ton of water-related bills in the Utah legislature this year. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Means. On this episode of State Street, we're going to look at some of the ways lawmakers want to help restore the Great Salt Lake. We'll talk to one Republican legislator about his efforts to bring long-term funding to the lake. We'll also talk with an environmental activist about what the state really needs to be doing to save the Great Salt Lake. But first... We wanted to see for ourselves what's at stake here and how dire the problem really is. So, Sonia, I took a little trip to the lake last week, and I met up with a couple of people who know this body of water really well. Nan Seymour is a local poet. She's been camping out at Antelope Island during the legislative session. And with her is Jamie Butler. She's a biologist at the Great Salt Lake Institute at Westminster College. Well, right now we're walking from the um, shorelines of the Great Salt Lake to the actual shoreline of Great Salt Lake that's much lower than it would be if we had more water. We hit the very lowest levels that we've ever seen at Great Salt Lake ever. It's a result of preventing water from getting to Great Salt Lake. We put it on farms, we put it in our homes, we take showers and do dishes with it. Um, We're also in a drought, and we're also starting to see the effects of climate change. Nan, what uh, what are you noticing about where we're walking right now? You've been walking down to the lake like every day you've been out here, right? Yeah. What have you been thinking about on your walks? When I walk towards the water, I think about a future where our ankles would be wet now instead of dry. And then I also think about what if we weren't walking towards this gorgeous, these lines of blue and sometimes green and sometimes perfect mirror of the sky is different every day. Like, what if that wasn't there? I, I I imagine in both directions. But what I think about is our obligation to future beings, and I'm not even thinking very far in the future, I'm thinking of children now, and it's, there's two possible conversations we're gonna have. They're gonna say, tell us what it was like when there was a lake, or they're gonna say, tell us again how you saved the lake. And it's everything, This this is the heart of life. Jamie, you know, you and I have talked before, and You've said that you're hopeful that, you know, people are paying attention to this now and there appears to be a desire to take action in some ways. Well, to me, hope means action. And we have been studying the lake for decades and we have some pretty good plans for how to prevent the lake from drying. Why do you think we've waited a long time to take action? (laughs) Well, the lake is weird. The lake is smelly. It's buggy. So I think 
you know, it gets kind of a bad rap and then we'll get to the shoreline and we don't just see blue lake, we see green gunk, but all of those things mean a healthy lake. And I think we didn't know the consequences. Not everybody understood this could be a big dust basin um, with super bad air quality. It'll wreck our snow and it'll affect our health and our property values. And even if you don't care about the birds, any of the two or three million people along the Wasatch Front, they'll, they'll realize that there's a consequence to drain the lake. Okay, we made it. Whew, it's a long walk. <laughs> At least it's like pretty flat. Yeah. <laughs> Emily, I gotta say, the first time I went to the Great Salt Lake, I was actually really turned off by how bad it smells. <laughs> I was not expecting that. But then I went back again at sunset and it was freaking gorgeous. And then I really understood the hype. <laughs> Listen, I think that's really fair, Sonia. It is very, very smelly out there. But I love how Jamie characterized that stink. The stink is life. <laughs> Emily, do you have any fond memories of going to the lake when you were a kid? You know, you grew up kind of close to Antelope Island. Yeah, I'm from Layton originally, which is really close to Antelope Island. Um, but I, I really don't have very fond memories of the lake. Every now and then my family might go out there. But now I've been out to the lake twice in the past couple of months. And when I was out there with Jamie and Nan recently, I was really struck by just how peaceful and beautiful it was. But Sonia, because of this intense drought the state is in, there are a bunch of general water conservation bills. They're not directly related to the Great Salt Lake, though. Yeah, but any water conservation measure is going to be helpful to the lake in a larger sense because the goal here is to just get more water into the Great Salt Lake. So the less we use, the more we have for the lake. Exactly. There are two bills that lawmakers say really go hand in hand when it comes to specifically helping Great Salt Lake. So I talked to Republican Representative Tim Hawks. He's kind of the legislature's go-to guy on the lake. And Sonia, you and I just now talked about our experiences with Great Salt Lake. So I asked Representative Hawks about his fondest memories. Actually, my only memory, like when I was a kid growing up, was a very, it was a not fond memory. I think we went to Antelope Island and everybody said you could float. And so I remember going out there and trying to float and I got a mouthful of um, Great Salt Lake water in my mouth and it was awful. Probably the best way to explain how I feel connected to the lake is to explain that for many years I didn't. Um, I think I was like most people and the lake was kind of an oddity, something that you saw when you drove to Wendover or if you're flying in an airplane out you know, out over the Great Salt Lake, kind of looked down and said, oh, that's interesting. It's pink or, you know, uh, some reaction like that. So it's really only the, the last five years that I've come to um, understand a lot about the lake. I was in water law and policy for many years, and then I took a job with the brine shrimp industry. And so suddenly I learned all about this ecosystem. I learned about the water challenges that were facing the lake. I mean, just in the last year, I've just had some amazing experiences out there one night on a perfectly dark night walking out across the playa and you can see the stars, um, it's otherworldly. And um, I've been able now to see some really remote parts of the lake and it's serenely beautiful uh, and inspiring. It's like nothing else, no other sort of experience in terms of place. 
Yeah, but nothing like a mouthful of Great Salt Lake yeah, water to, right. <laughs> to color your perspective. <laughs> so like you mentioned, you are also involved in the brine shrimp industry here in Utah. And brine shrimp harvesting is a multi-million dollar industry in this state. How does preserving the lake impact Utah's economy? One is there's just direct economic impact. So that would be, you know, that almost 8,000 local jobs spread over five counties about a billion five worth of direct economic activity. Most of that is mineral extraction. So they pull a lot of essential minerals out of Great Salt Lake. Magnesium, so your soda can, um, your cell phone, uh, they all contain magnesium from Great Salt Lake. The brine shrimp industry, as you mentioned, you know, if you eat shrimp or, you, you know, cook shrimp at home or you order it in a restaurant, there's a very good chance it ate brine shrimp at some point in its life uh, and probably brine shrimp from the Great Salt Lake. Um, there's bird hunting and bird watching and recreation on Antelope Island are also very important sources of economic activity. That Those are the economic impacts from the lake. And then there's all these other impacts that I think people are just starting to figure out. So talking about money, you have this bill this year that aims to put some sort of funding toward restoring the lake. In very simple terms, what does your bill do? You know, the lake for so many years has been out of sight, out of mind, and we've kind of taken it for granted. And that's because the lake, by and large, even at low levels, delivers what we need it to do. Now it's quite clear that the lake has enormous needs and we have to find a way to fund them. My bill is really deals more with long-term funding. So we talked about mineral extraction. Those companies pay money into an account and the state uses that account for a variety of things some of which touch on Great Salt Lake and many of which don't touch on Great Salt Lake. And so my bill basically says, hey, look, where the lake is generating these revenues, we ought to reinvest those revenues to protect this amazing resource. And then if we're able to generate new revenues, for example, from lithium that goes into rechargeable batteries, and there's some companies looking to extract lithium from the Great Salt Lake, if we're able to generate new revenue from lithium, well, let's dedicate that to protecting the water supply for the lake so that we can kind of protect the goose that laid the golden egg is probably the way to look at it. So my build really deals with um, that long-term funding piece and ensuring that some portion of the mineral royalties generated from the lake are reinvested to help protect the lake. What else is on the table in terms of solutions for the lake? Another bill that's working through the session that's, I think, important is Representative Joel Ferry has one about in-stream flow. So just to put things in perspective, you know, we have a water rights system that in many ways is designed to take all the water out of a natural system. And historically, um, the environment was not considered a beneficial use. So if you see water out there in the Great Salt Lake, in the eyes of the law, they'd say, well, that water's wasted. And if the lake was dry, then you'd say, well, that's a perfectly efficient lake because all the water is being diverted. All the water is going to these things that we've identified as beneficial uses. Now, 50 years ago, Utah said, oh, wait a minute, we see that there is value of leaving water in natural streams and lakes, but we're going to make it really, really hard to protect those rights. And what, what Representative Ferry's bill is basically just makes it a lot easier. It, it's very explicit about saying, listen, there's value in having water in that lake. It protects all of us. It's important to our quality of life. And so we recognize that benefit and we're going to empower solutions so that when that water goes to the lake, we're not going to consider it wasted. We're not going to take it away from you and give it to someone else. And if you're concerned about like balancing the way we use water into the future, it's really key to allow you know, the environment to have a seat at the table. Why? Because it benefits all of us. 
you know, we've talked a lot now about the importance of keeping water in the lake. And that's what scientists and environmental experts have said is really the main solution to saving the Great Salt Lake. What the legislature is proposing this year, you know, with Representative Ferry's bill, is that enough? In and of itself, it's not enough. So nobody believes that the $50 million or Representative Ferry's bill or the long-term bill that I have, that that's going to be enough in and of itself to save the lake. We certainly need to see some wet cycles and not just one. We need to see back to back to back in a perfect world. But what these solutions do is they make it more and more likely that we can keep the lake in healthy and sustainable ranges. It's going to take more resources. It's going to take more creativity. It's going to take people working together even more. And it's going to have to be an order of magnitude greater investment. But we need to stop and recognize what an amazing step forward this year means. I see it as kind of laying the foundation stones for for a solution. We still have to build those solutions, but we're getting that much closer to doing it. When it's all said and done, what do you hope the lake will be like? Well, I think everybody's effort is to try to keep the lake in these healthy ranges. We know what a healthy range is. We know that the lake is approaching some critical thresholds on the the low end, you know, but if we can find ways, I call them emergency levers, so that when the lake starts going down into these critical thresholds, we can pull these emergency levers, the water flows to the lake and keeps it at sustainable levels. That, that's the holy grail. That's what we're trying to get to. Mother nature can deal us a bad hand and it's hard to overcome that. But the best available science suggests if we take these steps, we dramatically increases the possibility that the lake remains in those healthy ranges. Representative Tim Hawks, thanks for talking with me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. All right, Emily, water law is complicated to say the least. So let's break it down a little more. We've got one bill by Representative Joel Ferry It basically allows lakes, wetlands, et cetera, to have water rights for people to own the water in them. And Ferry is a farmer, so he explained how this could work for him. The last, I I grow a lot of wheat, and wheat has been so cheap the last five years, I haven't made a penny on it, but I don't have enough water to grow anything else. So if I don't grow wheat, I, what am I going to do with my water? I have, I have, we have a use it or lose it. And so I grow wheat knowing I'm going to take a loss. Well, in this case, if, if say, below me is the Bear River Bird Refuge, they could come to me and say, hey, we will, instead of growing your wheat, we'll give you 50 bucks an acre. So I can make a little bit of money. They get water to fill the refuge. I then am able to continue to farm. So farmers upstream of the Great Salt Lake, for example, could do the same thing. That bill has passed the House and it still needs to be approved in the Senate. And then you've got the bill from Representative Tim Hawks that sets up this special fund for Great Salt Lake conservation money. For example, it could be used to buy water for the Great Salt Lake, which is possible if Ferry's bill passes, too. Hawks's bill unanimously passed the House last week and is now in the Senate. We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll hear from an environmentalist who says these bills are a good start, but the legislature needs to do way more to save the lake. You're listening to State Street. Support for State Street comes from the Hinckley Report podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion about the biggest political headlines in the Beehive State. 
Find new episodes of PBS Utah's The Hinckley Report every Friday, wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to State Street. I'm Emily Means. And I'm Sonia Hudson. To get an idea of how helpful these bills are from an environmentalist perspective, I talked to Zach Frankel. He is the executive director of the Utah Rivers Council, which is a nonprofit that focuses on preserving the state's rivers and the ecosystems that they support. I started off by asking him if these two Republican bills we've been talking about go far enough. You know, the Great Salt Lake is in a crisis right now, and unfortunately, it's unlikely that the worst is over with climate change shrinking our snowpacks. So the bills being offered in the 2022 legislative session are good baby steps forward, but they are baby steps that should have been taken 20 years ago if we really want to save the Great Salt Lake. Your organization has also put together a more aggressive proposal. What would that do? The gist of it is, is that as the Great Salt Lake gets to lower and lower levels, more serious fees are increased on big water users to raise the price of water and thereby disincentivizing water waste. Would that be enough to save the Great Salt Lake? Our legislation was modeled after a successful effort in the lower Colorado River Basin that is popular among 30 million people in Arizona, California, Nevada, and Mexico to try and raise the levels of America's largest reservoir, which is Lake Mead. So if it works for 30 million people downstream, why can't it work inside Utah for a couple million Utahns? Our legislation is designed to be the framework for future protection efforts. But even if our legislation was to pass this legislative session, it still does not go far enough to protect the Great Salt Lake over the long term. What would the legislature need to do then in order to save the Great Salt Lake? And how much can it even do? Can this be solved by policy? The Great Salt Lake can unquestionably be solved by policy. This isn't a matter of whether we have tools available to us in Utah to protect the Great Salt Lake. The issue has been one of ethical courage on the part of our Utah legislators to say no to special interests in the hallways that is profiting off the sale of water and incentivizing Utahns to wastewater. So what are those tools that we have now and how should the state be better utilizing them to save the Great Salt Lake? The biggest leap forward we could take in Utah to save the Great Salt Lake is to price water appropriately. You know, if we price water like it doesn't matter, we can't really be surprised when we find out that Utahns are using twice the U.S. average of municipal water. And the reason for that is because Utah keeps insisting on collecting taxes to lower the price of water and send a signal to the consumer, you can waste water. Let's talk about the proposed Bear River diversion, which is basically a project that will take water from the Bear River, which is the Great Salt Lake's main tributary, and use it to support population growth. How would that impact the water levels of the lake? 
Because the Bear River provides 60 to 70% of the surface water inflow to the Great Salt Lake every year, if Bear River development is approved, it will lower the Great Salt Lake several feet in elevation that will have major impacts to both wildlife species and air quality for Wasatch Front residents. If the lake continues to shrink, there is also going to be a ripple effect on other environmental justice issues. You know, for example, a shrinking lake will worsen air quality in the valley. How would a dwindling Great Salt Lake impact some groups of people more than others? So as we shrink the Great Salt Lake, we create these lake bed storms, which put harmful particulate matter into our lungs. Especially in the spring and fall months, people look outside and they think it looks all cloudy, like there's a storm coming in, but there's no precipitation. And to give you an idea of how bad it is, you know, a red air day, uh, according to the air quality indicator, is when we experience um, PM 2.5 at 55 micrograms per cubic meter. So 55 is where we begin the red air day. And the red well, air day is, is bad. <laughs> the red air days are, are dreaded and you're not supposed to go outside and exercise whatsoever because you're doing long-term impacts to your own health. Well, when we have these dust events, it's not uncommon for the air quality indicator to be much, much higher than a red air day. Instead of 55 micrograms per cubic meter, on dust storm events, we can experience 250 micrograms per meter, according to the website that is monitoring dust. And it's important to note that these dust events have a disproportionately large impact on lower income populations. Lower income populations tend to be more involved with manual labor activities and are, have more exposure to this, especially if they're working outdoors during these dust storms. And this can be expected to happen more frequently as the lake drops to lower and lower and lower historic levels. What is your outlook on the future of the Great Salt Lake? Is this the tipping point for getting proposals passed? Um, are you optimistic? Are you pessimistic? Or are you somewhere in the middle? The crossroads we find ourselves at today is whether Utahns are going to go down the path of continued propaganda and disinformation and believing that we have to dry up the Great Salt Lake to be able to have economic activity, or whether we can go down an alternative path that other states have gone down decades ahead of us to build a sustainable water future that allows both economic development and allows us to protect the Great Salt Lake. Zach Frankel, Executive Director of the Utah Rivers Council, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you so much for having me, Sonia. It's been great to talk to you. So, Sonia, there is some common ground on this issue around Great Salt Lake. Always a good sign. That's not always the case. <laughs> Truly. And everyone seems to agree that we're turning a new page on Great Salt Lake. What's on the other side, though, that kind of depends on what policies the state ends up passing. 
Yeah, I mean, the most important thing that everyone seems to agree on is that we need to keep water in the lake. Which is actually a pretty huge pivot from the attitudes around water a few years ago. Mm -hmm. Representative Hawk said for a long time, a dry lake was considered an efficient lake. So basically, water is meant to be used for human consumption. Speaking of water being for human consumption, one project that the state really has its eyes on and that legislative leadership seems committed to is the Bear River Diversion. Here's Senate President Stuart Adams during his opening day speech last month. We have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to invest in water infrastructure. We need to build the Bear River and the Lake Powell Water Projects. This is the project that will take water from the Bear River, which is Great Salt Lake's biggest tributary, and use it to support population growth in northern Utah. And this will likely have a big impact on the lake, right? Just how big that impact is, though, is kind of a little bit up for debate. You know, the Department of Natural Resources thinks it will lower the lake level by about a foot. But Zach Frankel thinks it's actually way more like multiple feet. And he basically said that if we move forward with this project, the lake is screwed, and so is our whole ecosystem. That's that's pretty big. So there's a lot at stake there. Definitely. There was this more aggressive proposal put forth by the Utah Rivers Council, which would make water more expensive the lower the lake levels get. But that's no longer an option for this legislative session. Right. They put a little bit of a pause on that for now, but they are planning to pursue it again during interim sessions. And Zach says, you know, this idea is popular among 30 million people downstream from us in the Colorado River Basin. I will say, however, that negotiating that agreement was very contentious between all the states that were involved, even though they did eventually get it done in 2019. But a similar framework has not been able to gain traction here in Utah. And Zach says one potential obstacle to that proposal is water districts. They make more money the more water that people use. And people using too much water, obviously, Sonia, is not good for the lake. Right. And we've also got a lot of people moving to the state, which is growing our economy. But those people all need to use water, too. So we'll have to see how the legislature puts these two ideas of conservation and economic growth together. You know, using less water obviously hurts those water districts. You've got new people coming in that need water. But the impacts of a drying Great Salt Lake, like bad air quality, for example, that could hurt the state's chance for growth because it makes it so much less desirable to live here. There was a lot going on up at the Capitol this week besides water policy. So, Sonia, let's talk about a few other issues the legislature tackled. Like free tampons and pads. The House unanimously passed a bill that would put free period products in all public school bathrooms. Lawmakers said that students were having to miss class because they didn't have access to period products. And they want to make sure that kids in Utah can learn without having to worry about that. Learn with dignity, they said. And, you know, Emily, this is a very real issue. I remember in middle and high school personally having to miss parts of class sometimes because I didn't have a tampon or a pad. And that was just because I forgot them. So imagine if you couldn't afford these products at all. 
Senate Republicans are trying to reassert that counties and cities cannot create gun control laws. Salt Lake County found this loophole in a state law, and they used it to require background checks for all gun sales and transfers conducted at county facilities, like expo centers, for example, where gun shows can be held. So under a bill that passed the Senate this week, the county would not be able to require those background checks anymore. Loophole closed. And that, unsurprisingly, passed along party lines. Utah's driver's license exam could soon be offered in languages besides English. A bill requiring that passed through its first committee last week. Right now, only refugees and people who are granted asylum can take the exam in their native language. And one person said the driver license exam was harder than the citizenship test. Wow. Yeah, and they really wish they could have taken it in their own language. You know, I actually had to take the driver license exam when I switched from having a California license to a Utah license. I'm a native English speaker, and I thought that test was really hard. Well, Sonia, did you pass it, though? Because you drive me places all the time. No, I did. I did. Don't worry. I I figured it out. That does it for this episode of State Street. I'm Sonia Hudson. And I'm Emily Neens. The team includes Caroline Ballard, Elaine Clark, Brenton Weiniger, and Jim Hill. State Street is a production of KUER. If you liked what you heard, be sure to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you happen to be listening. It really helps other listeners find the show. If you want to learn more about the lake, check out Radio West series on Great Salt Lake. You can find a link to that on our website. And if you want to learn more about what's going on in the legislature, Sonia and I send out a weekly recap newsletter. You can sign up for that at statestreetpod.org. See you next week. (laughs) So we're sitting here and we're watching this wonderful, white, jiggly, glistening, sparkly foam that's just jiggling in the wind. It it bubbles up because there's no surface tension. So you couldn't really do a very great belly flop on Great Salt Lake because there's no surface tension. And there's also lots of fat in the water that can hold the bubbles together better. Um, And so when the wind whips up and it makes those bubbles under the water, they don't pop when they hit the surface and then they stay together. So you get these big lines of foam when it's been kind of windy. Oh, that's so cool. What do you mean there's fat in the water? (laughs) Isn't that weird? I feel like everything you say, I just have another question for you to explain that. From KUER.